BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In Concord, a new guaranteed income program will provide 120 families with $500 a month for a year. It's one of 20 similar pilot programs that have sprung up in the Bay Area over the last few years to help people become more financially stable. Since a well-publicized trial in Stockton a few years ago, California's become a hotbed for these experiments as state and local officials allocate more money to them. Advocates say that no-strings-attached cash just works, allowing people to cover the basics or pay down debt. Now that it's less of a wild idea and more a policy tool, we'll check in on the latest programs and what we've learned from all these pilots. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I remember when I first heard about the idea of some kind of guaranteed or basic income. For me, it first came packaged among the proposals to deal with job displacement by robots and you know, then later AI. But when I scratched the surface, a different history revealed itself. In the 1960s, people as different as Martin Luther King Jr., the Black Panthers, and Milton Friedman, the economist, believed that some variation of a guaranteed income could be incredibly effective at helping poor people. Why? Because the main problem that poor people have is not having enough money. Putting cash into their accounts makes their lives measurably better, as it does for most people who are struggling to pay for the necessities of life. And so the pilots that have grown up in different communities in the state now target different groups. One CalMatters analysis earlier this year found that 12,000 Californians were set to receive more than $180 million dollars. Concord now joining the ranks, as you just heard. But one reason for all the pilots is government officials and nonprofits want to learn some things, not just give away money. So what have we learned? It's our key question this morning. We're joined first by Natalie Foster, president and co-founder of the Economic Security Project, a research center focused on guaranteed income programs. Welcome, Natalie. Great to be here. We're also joined by Amy Castro, Associate Professor of the School of Social Policy and Practice and co-founder and faculty director of the Center for Guaranteed Income Research at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Amy. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And we're joined by Julia Quintero, who's Elevate Concord's project manager with Monument Impact, a nonprofit organization that's administering the Guaranteed Income Program in Concord. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. Um, So... 
Let's first get a little bit of background. Um, Julia, you're leading this program to provide guaranteed income to 120 people. Can you tell us how your org kind of got involved and where the idea came from? Sure. So um, Monument Impact has been serving um, residents in Concord for over 20 years. Um, So we're really kind of attuned to what's happening in the community. And basically in early 2022, um, kind of in this post quote unquote COVID (laughs) world, um, we saw that there was an influx of people coming into our office asking for resources. They needed help with rent. Um, They needed food, clothing, um, job referrals. Mm. Um, And so we as a team kind of decided, well, what is the best way to help our community in this moment? Um, And especially taking into consideration that most folks, um, at least in the Monument Corridor, are Latinx immigrants and refugees who Mm -hmm. were largely left out of this COVID relief um, stimulus packets. And um, we ended up joining forces with the Contra Costa GI Working Group. and Guaranteed Income Working Group. Yeah, Sorry, (laughs) Guaranteed Income Working Group. And um, we did some focus groups and really found that the people needed money for a variety of things. And that's when... Uh, guaranteed income kind of came mm-hmm. into talks with us. Yeah. Was it hard to find people to participate? No. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> everybody needs money, right? And for us, it was trying to figure out our criteria. All programs have certain criteria. And, and for us, we focused on single parents with young children. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it wasn't hard to find them. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you decide on the amount of money? I mean, some of the programs have given away $1,200 or $1,500. Like how did you come in at this number? Well, it mostly depends on funding, right? Um, so we were awarded $1.5 million in American Rescue Plan Act funds, so ARPA funds. Um, and that's where we started thinking about, okay, this is how much we'll give people. And in, and in these focus groups, we th- we asked people, would you rather receive $1,000 for six months or $500 for a year? Mm. And most people said that they'd rather have the 500 for a year. Huh. Because of the stability that that provides? Yeah, I think so. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, and you just started giving the, the uh, cash away now, right? Like just in the last month or so? Yes. Um, our participants got their first payment of $500 last month and their second one a few days ago. Um, and we also provided them with twenty five hundred, um, a one time stabilization gift, um, mm-hmm. to make sure that uh, they got a really big push at the beginning of the pro- of the project. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they needed to pay any rent that they owed or fix their car, anything like that, that hmm. they would have a nice chunk of cash That's at the beginning. Hey, Natalie, I know you've been working on these uh, guaranteed income pilots for a long time. Can you give us some of the broader context of sort of how many of these programs have launched in the region and the state and what you think is kind of driving uh, the growth in these pilots? Yeah, it's um, it's been so exciting to see, you know, several years ago, Mayor Michael Tubbs was one of the first in the nation and certainly in California to launch a demonstration in Stockton. <clears throat> we At Economic Security Project, we're proud to work alongside him and get that demonstration off the ground. And from there, uh, we've had dozens across the state of California and hundreds of cities and counties and nonprofits in um, different areas who are holding their own demonstrations to show what a guaranteed income would look like in their communities 
if it were policy mm-hmm. um, in this country. And it's um, it's been exciting to see, and we've learned a lot. Um, you know, we know that stress levels go down. We know that um, people have increased, you know, go to the doctor and the dentist more. You know, we know mm-hmm. that people's lives are better because they have breathing room um, mm-hmm. when they have regular cash infusions like a guaranteed income. So, you know, uh, Kenichi uh, on Discord, one of our listeners says, you know, is the term universal basic income being used for financial assistance programs with few or no requirements, even if they're not universal? I thought universality was one of the essential parts of UBI since it eliminates stigma. Natalie, it, it does seem like the terminology has been shifting from universal basic income to guaranteed income in a lot of these different programs. Yeah, I actually think they're slightly different things. So he's right, or they're right. A universal basic income is really is focused on everybody getting the payment. So in the state of Alaska, every Alaskan gets um, a permanent fund check. It's a it's a dividend that they receive back annually, um, and that's akin to a universal basic income. We focus on guaranteed income because it can be targeted. It can be targeted to families who need it the most. And due to the racialized nature of poverty, Mm -hmm. often black and brown families have been shoved into low-wage jobs and um, can invest in communities of color Mm -hmm. and families who need it the most when you target uh, the payments. So the operative word there is the guarantee, that it comes no matter what, uh, happens, um, whether, you know, a pandemic hits and millions of jobs are thrown, you know, millions of people are thrown out of work overnight, or um, whether it's, you know, or something good happens, change. right? You get a new or job or, or whatever. Happens, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. That's true. And, and, but it, that it's guaranteed that every, you know, month um, that the check comes and families can count on it. Yeah. Amy Castro from University of Pennsylvania, you've worked on these programs for, I think, six years now. I mean, how is a guaranteed income program different from, say, what we once called welfare? Yeah, that's it's a great question. So the biggest difference between guaranteed income or UBI, to, you know, to give a nod to the previous um, question, um, is that one has strings attached and one does not. So traditional programs like food stamps, Section 8 vouchers, you know, and welfare payments they come with a lot of conditionality. So you have to meet um, certain criteria, which means that you stop receiving those benefits if you have any measurable increase in income. So practically speaking, this means that if a family you know, works even one single shift beyond a specific benefits threshold, they could lose all of those benefits in the next month, um, actually pushing them further into poverty. In contrast, guaranteed income is unconditional. You don't have to do anything to receive it. If you meet the, the criteria and you are enrolled into one of these programs, you continue to receive that money no matter what happens with the rest of your household finances. Um, Second, the other thing that's really different about these programs is that you're not required to do anything while you're receiving the cash, right? So you're not required to participate in financial literacy programs to only spend the money on certain Mm. things. Um, You just simply receive the money and that rests on the logic that people are the experts on their own lives, particularly families um, and particularly parents know best what their kids need. But also, hasn't there been research on the way that work requirements have been used in welfare programs to to essentially force people into working at like sub minimum wage jobs in order to receive some kind of cash assistance from the government? Correct. Yeah, that's exactly how TANF, which is the, you know, the acronym for for welfare, that's exactly how TANF works. You're required to be working in a job in order to receive that money. Um, And I think one of the things that's really important to note is that these are not just 
sort of criteria that live on some sort of policymaker spreadsheet, right? Like they are, okay, like these, these are actual numerical thresholds, but those numerical thresholds come with layers of shame and blame and assumptions about what we believe about why people are in poverty and why they're stuck there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we police the behavior of low-income households in a way that we don't police the behavior of the rest of the economy. And so oftentimes those strings or requirements um, come with things that are completely inaccurate from basically what we know, mm -hmm. according to the data, which is that most people who are living on the margins actually budget better than the wealthy. And there's also this kind of governmental overhead that goes into it, right? So some of the funds that were dedicated to alleviate poverty are instead going to a company that manages a TANF uh, welfare program, right? Um, I'm I'm wondering, uh, Julia, how you all have thought about kind of managing this program and trying to make it sort of as efficient as possible into like putting dollars in the pockets of the people who are receiving this. Yeah, we, I mean, we've followed... Um, kind of the the procedures and the steps of our predecessors, right, of um, the seed project in Stockton. Um, we've been collaborating a lot with Momentum, a guaranteed income program in Marin, and trying to figure out um, what is the best way to run a program. Mm -hmm. um, and for us, what we've learned, right, is um, people, again, do need the money and they know what they need it for. Um, so in that space, we we don't really need to educate people or, or really do much with that. Mm -hmm. um, for us, it's really important that we provide um, these kind of wraparound services. Um, Monument Impact offers a variety of um, technology courses um, so people can learn how to use computers mm -hmm. or um, we have an emerging business program. Mm -hmm. And so really trying to get some of these folks into these programs and, and help them um, be, give by giving them the money, but also giving them other resources. Yeah, like it's the start of the pathway for you. Exactly. Yeah. We're talking about guaranteed income programs, including a new one that has just launched in Concord. We're joined by Julia Quintero, Elevate Concord Project Manager with Monumental Impact, running that program in Concord. Natalie Foster, president and co-founder of the Economic Security Project, which is a research center focused on guaranteed income programs. And Amy Castro, associate professor with the School of Social Policy and Practice, co-founder and faculty director of the Center for Guaranteed Income Research at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about guaranteed income programs, including a new one in Concord. We've got Julia Quintero, who's 
Project Manager for the Concord Program. Natalie Foster, President and Co-Founder of the Economic Security Project. And Amy Castro, who's the Faculty Director for the Center for Guaranteed Income Research at the University of Pennsylvania. We'd love to hear from you, particularly if you've been a participant in one of California's Guaranteed Income Pilot Programs. What's your experience been like? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. We know there's about 20 of these programs in the Bay Area, including uh, several in San Francisco alone. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Or, of course, you can find us on the digital community over on the Discord. You can go to kqed.org slash forum. Um, I have been wondering, you know, Natalie, we've been in this period of experimentation. Do we ha- have we built out the infrastructure that we need to be able to run these at greater scale, like to get cash into people's pockets? Do we have all the everything that's needed or not? Yeah, we do actually, and and we did a trial run of this um, during the pandemic. Um, during the pandemic, we passed the child, the expanded child tax credit which has a very innocuous sounding name, uh, but turns out to be a guaranteed income for families. Mm -hmm. It meant that every family in America got a check each month with no strings attached. Uh, It was about 200, 250 per kid. Um, And uh, weeks after Congress passed the bill, the IRS moved into gear and started putting money directly into parents' accounts. So we now know exactly how to do this at the federal level. And that it can be done, it simply lacks political will. Yeah, this is so interesting because my understanding of this was that by the metrics that at least, you know, many of us care about, like lifting children out of poverty, this was like extremely successful. And then it was just let to lapse and basically Democrats who had pushed it through didn't even want to talk about it. So like what what happened there? It was extremely successful. You know, we know that it kicked poverty down by 40% across the country. Um, And very significantly in California, it meant kids had three meals a day on the table. It meant parents were less stressed. And we invested in families at a time, if, if you remember back, it was very, very stressful. We defied gravity by reducing poverty during that moment. That is not what one might have thought was going to happen in the midst of millions of jobs, you know, going away overnight. It was a very stressful time, and yet it was the lowest record of poverty in American history. So we know what to do. We know poverty is a policy choice, and unfortunately, a big political bet was made that if if they if Congress passed a short term set of you know expanded child tax credit checks, that there's that they would be able to continue them. And Washington, D.C. is so gridlocked that that was not the case. Mm. So instead, states are really picking up the mantle. Uh, People, state legislators and governors across the country are looking at those statistics. They're looking at what the child tax credit meant in people's lives, and they're passing their own child tax credit. Mm -hmm. So we double the number of states with um, these tax credits on the books, and we hope to triple them by 2025. This is red states, purple states, and blue states. And so I think that bodes well for the future of the social contract in America. Mm. Amy, um, coming back to the pilots, I mean, what is the data that's coming back from these programs? Tell us about kind of the best ways to make these programs work. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because on the one hand, we have this tremendous momentum, right? Um, on the other, there's actually still a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to unconditional cash, when we think about that from a research perspective. But what we do know are a few things. Um, first, we know that the majority of the money that is spent in these experiments goes to basic needs. So, you know, the, the top, you know, level of spending that we typically see is around food, which is unsurprising given the level of food insecurity in the United States right now. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, things like utilities and household goods. So just sort of want to, want to put that out there at the, at the outset. Um, the second thing that I think is probably the most exciting, you know, to me as, you know, as a social scientist are these reductions that we see in anxiety, stress, mm -hmm. and depression. So when we started the Stockton experiment, uh, we had a treatment group who was getting the $500 a month. And then we had a comparison group that didn't receive any cash. And, you know, we followed them over time to see what would happen. At the beginning of the experiment, everyone, just about everyone, excuse me, in the treatment group or in the comparison group met the clinical criteria for anxiety, depression, or both. After one year of unconditional cash, the people in the treatment group moved from likely to have a mild mental health disorder to the category of likely to be well. Hmm. We didn't provide counseling. We didn't provide therapy. We didn't provide any mental health treatment whatsoever. What we did was we calmed income volatility. And by smoothing that income volatility, what we did was we saw drastic reductions in stress, anxiety, and increases in people's well-being. And what that really speaks to is the ways that the failures of capitalism get under the skin. Um, you know, they they harm our workforce, they harm families, they harm relationships. And when we think about this, you know, only through the lens of money, we are missing out on a much bigger conversation, which is who do we want to be as people? Um, what type of social contract do we want to have? And, and how do we want to show up for one another in community? Yeah. Julia, thinking about your program um, in Concord, what are the sort of endpoints you're measuring for? Is it, you know, uh, reductions in poverty? Is it, you know, in uh, improvements in mental health, something else? Yeah, we're measuring um, improvements in mental health, anxiety, stress. Um, we're measuring um, income volatility, whether or not that decreases. Um, we're seeing if people are able to um, afford their rent, maybe move somewhere. Um, we are seeing if people become more engaged in the community. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, of course, we want to see if um, people can just generally have better lives mm -hmm. overall, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And spend more time with their kids, that kind of thing. You know, Amy, um, I've noticed with a lot of these pilots uh, over the years, either, you know, the groups that are targeted, the amount of cash given, the precise configuration of, you know, the distance of the pilot and these kinds of things have all been slightly different. Does it help you in your research or hurt you to have so many different kinds of, of pilots? That's such a good question. Um, it would help. So currently in our center, we're running um, just over 30 of these experiments around the United States. And what we're doing is we're employing similar methodology or research questions across all these different sites, which means that we'll be able to say within a few short years, how much money is required to create um, particular types of change based on sort of cost of living, hmm. um, the type of population that you're working with, you know, things of that nature. So, you know, with Stockton, we started out with $500 a month. It was it kind of made logical sense because in economic mobility research, we asked the question whether or not a household can absorb a $400 shock. So that's, you know, in large part why that $500 you know, hmm. dollar threshold was set. But since then, you know, we have record levels of inflation. Um, that money is not going as far right now as it did pre-pandemic. 
So there's some really open questions about how long someone needs to receive cash and the amount of money that it needs to be to create change. One thing that we do know is that it does take a minimum of six months of recurring predictable cash payments to see changes in health and well-being. So lump sum payments or short-term payments, they do relieve, you know, relieve material hardship and obviously address things like poverty and food insecurity. But when we're looking at deeper change, it really does take a minimum of six months of payments. I think one of the things that's so exciting about this Concord group is that they took a dual approach. So they said, okay, we're going to do one lump sum payment at the beginning and then combine that with recurring payments over time. So I'll be really excited as a scientist to see what happens with that particular pilot because they're they're combining two strategies at the same time. Yeah. Fix your carburetor and then you can move on from there. Yeah. It makes sense. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I uh, I want to add another voice into our conversation. Uh, dress- Jessica Trevina is director of the Richmond Rapid Response Fund. They're preparing to launch the Contra Costa chapter of the Abundant Birth Project, a guaranteed income pilot for pregnant moms. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, thanks for having me. So you've been working on a couple of programs uh, up in Richmond. Can you tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah, thank you so much. So during the pandemic, um, uh, over 100 organizations got together at the West Contra Costa um, Care Coalition and said, like, what are we going to do to support our folks? Um, and folks who were working in the local safety net for years uh, started collaborating in a way that they just simply hadn't uh, hadn't previously. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, the Hellman Foundation, the city of Richmond and some other uh, partners were saying, how do we actually get money directly into the hands of our residents? This is not something, you know, that had been done before. And so the Richmond Rapid Response Fund uh, came to bear. And so we've been providing direct cash grants over the last three years as far as as well as rent relief um, in, in two different rounds to our community. And through and during this whole time, we knew that guaranteed income was an aim uh, because we need to change our policies. We want to bolster our safety net and we really want to um, help folks with the benefits cliff that I think um, both Amy and Natalie have talked about that kind of happened with our traditional kind of paternal yeah. uh, welfare or subsidy programs. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we 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 started with a, an initial direct response, and now we've been working on creating a Richmond-wide uh, program in which now we have community leaders who are are, are building out the design and finishing out uh, some of our fundraising for the work, as well as, like we said, supporting our partners with the Abundant Birth Project for their statewide expansion. What kind of results have you seen? So similar to what folks are seeing everywhere, right? We see folks that are having less income volatility. We have reduced stress. You have folks who are spending money on the things that families spend money on, as we've mentioned over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's it's food, it's car repairs, school. Um, and, and like I said, one of the reasons we started our rent program is that so many folks were using their emergency funds to support rent. And we certainly know that here in the Bay Area, $500 doesn't go very far when it comes to rent. Yeah. You know, can you talk more about the Abundant Birth Project and why pregnant moms specifically have become kind of an emerging theme of uh, some of these guaranteed income programs? Yeah, I'll say that my background is in actually public health. And so we've seen that child child and maternal health disparities have been egregious over the last, uh, for a long time, but it's becoming more and more present in the media. And I think that folks are realizing that there are um, impacts to pregnancy that are not related to what we think about for other interventions. Um, So like, for example, race. Um, And so where even as income might be the same across race, and we're still seeing poor outcomes. And so um, the five top 
reasons that folks are experiencing preterm birth are what exactly the Abundant Birth Project and the statewide expansion are covering. Um, and so that includes, you know, mamas who have had preterm birth outcomes, mm. includes um, women who are racialized as, as Black women. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that we're, that guaranteed income has its space. And I think that what's really important about guaranteed income, like has been mentioned, is that we can learn a lot. So as a public health intervention, noticing how cash volatility impacts the outcome of our babies, I think is really important. Mm. You know, um, you you may be feeling uh, like it's difficult to speak freely because there are some lawsuits that have been filed, right, against uh, Abundant Birth Project for people who are trying to stop the distribution of funds um, on the basis of what they say is on the on the basis of race. Um, is that an accurate like description of the situation, like the, the lawsuits themselves? Um, uh. Yeah. And that, yeah. And so, yeah, I would offer no additional comment because I like yeah. on what, because we see that folks are, yeah, I guess I'm talking, but I would say that, yes, it seems that the actual pending lit- litigations are narrow and not aware of the fu- the greater context of the work. Um, and certainly not around uh, guaranteed mm-hmm. income or child and maternal health outcomes. And so we know that that um, it's actually, preposterous to waste time uh, focusing on that when we can focus on taking care of our folks. Have you seen, you know, Amy Castro, maybe I'll ask you, unless you know the the answer to this one, Natalie, have you seen other lawsuits filed around targeting criteria that aims to, that, that is loosely based on race, I think I would say in this case. Um, Have you seen that kind of pushback in other places, Amy? Uh, no, I haven't seen that type of pushback where lawsuits have actually been filed. I've definitely seen places where people are pushing back or threatening to do so. Hmm. Um, but I do believe that the current kind of round of lawsuits that they're they're handling there with that situation are the only ones that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's um, go to the phones. Um, Tom in uh, Mariposa, welcome. Hey, thank you very much. Um, you just talked about protected minorities. I'm one. I'm an old guy. <laughs> and we have guaranteed income. It's called Social Security. Social Security is guaranteed income, and it has been a life. It's been here for. I mean, this is not a. The idea of guaranteed income shouldn't strike people as odd. Mm, mm. And I'm perfectly comfortable. I will rush to say that perhaps under the age of rickety, um, <laughs> it should be need based. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so 65 is fine. Uh, uh, but 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 pregnant moms. Uh, Black and brown people, uh, unhoused people. There are whole groups of people who, like like old guys, are are find themselves in particular yeah. uh, particular situations. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yes. And why not? Why not have? Why not expand the idea of social security or the concept of social security as as guaranteed income, which is a lifesaver for. Uh, yeah. For me and many of my neighbors uh, around here, so Tom, thank you so Yeah, thanks so much for that. I mean, I think if people have kind of forgotten what that did for poverty among elderly people, the expansion of Social Security, first creation, and then expansion of it. Nat- Natalie, can you talk to us a little bit about how you see, uh, do a little compare, contrast with guaranteed income and Social Security? Yeah, I think uh, you're exactly right. One way to think of guaranteed income is Social Security for all. 
Uh, and that is a way that we could see it moving in the U.S. You know, one of the things I think about is the early stages of Social Security. It was um, a number of groups started to spring up around the country called Towns and Clubs, and they were advocating for an old age pension, um, looking at post-war Germany, saying, we want that in the United States. And um, the groups grew and grew and grew. And then um, in a crisis, you know, President Roosevelt would enact Social Security, keying off what those local groups were advocating for. And I think, I hope it is very similar to the demonstrations we see today, mm. where there are demonstrations of guaranteed income across the country. They are saying, look at what a federal guaranteed income could do for our communities. People have more agency, more freedom, and they are the authors of their own lives when there is economic security. So let's do it federally. Yeah. Um, Jessica, one thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, earlier Julia was saying that they're trying to offer, you know, other kind of wraparound services. One question I had is whether once people start receiving the cash, they come closer to the organization or they are or they actually move farther away because they are able to you know, meet more needs without accessing other services. Like, how has that worked for you all? Awesome. Yeah. And I think that this is this is the conversation that that comes to bear with most kind of nonprofit and social service work around engagement. When you're engaging, you know, what they actually call hard to reach or hard to engage populations from a public kind of uh, I said public sector standpoint, oftentimes these are communities that are not welcome in public service agencies. And so these nonprofits that usually exist have expertise with that community. They have cultural expertise, they have linguistic capabilities, they have community ambassadors who go out and engage. And so those relationships have already been um, often fostered in community, even if the folks who are receiving these um, income subsidies or these the, these guaranteed incomes, even if they've never been involved in the agency already, these are usually trusted agencies in their community um, that already exist. And so the wraparound services and the sources, like folks might even there's no wrong door. So folks might already be engaged in other services that are happening there on the ground. And so from that, there's already a trust built. And so folks are probably already engaging in some kind of way mm -hmm. or it encourages them to engage. And of course, it's simply, you know, not everyone is going to engage closer, but there are folks who are so changed by the experience of what we've seen even one-time cash grants and are even preparing to be a part of the community researchers who are preparing to implement these programs that they want to stay closer because they say, hey, this works. This is good. Mm. We're onto something here. I see Julia uh, nodding in here as well. We're talking about guaranteed income programs, including new one launched in Concord and ones running in Richmond. We're joined by Jessica Trevina, who's director of Richmond Rapid Response Fund, working on the stuff up in Richmond. Julia Quintero, who's Elevate Concord program project manager with Monument Impact up in Concord. Also joined by Natalie Foster, president and co-founder of Economic Security Project, which has been working on this for years, and Amy Castro, associate professor at University of Pennsylvania and faculty director of the Center for Guaranteed Income Research. We'd love to hear from you if you've been a participant in one of California's basic income pilot programs, what your experience has been like. The numbers 866-733-6786. You know the email. It's forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about guaranteed income pilots, including ones in Concord and Richmond, among the 20 that have uh, launched here in the Bay Area. Joined by Julia Quintero, Elevate Concord Project Manager. Joined by Natalie Foster, President and Co-Founder of the Economic Security Project. Amy Castro, Faculty Director for the Center for Guaranteed Income Research at Penn. And Jessica Trevina, who's the Director of the Richmond Rapid Response Fund. I we have some a, a bunch of really interesting comments coming in from listeners and, and questions. And I think the first one goes to you, Amy, and then Natalie, I'm gonna have your get your response as well. Listener writes, I would like to hear whether there's an objective national assessment, not just anecdotes, about whether guaranteed basic income is the primary way we would choose to spend this money. I'm going to say this question is also, should we spend the money this way? Um, What do you think, Amy? Like, What's the best way to compare the outcomes of a guaranteed basic income with those from some other type of support services? It's a really good question. You know, I think the thing that I would point to is what Natalie was speaking to earlier, which is to look at the child tax credit. Um, You know, we saw when we look at the child tax credit, we saw that we had the lowest recorded levels of childhood poverty in the United States in U.S. history. Um, You know, I I don't know about the listener, but I certainly want to live in a country where we have the lowest levels of childhood poverty. Um, And we saw that when the child tax credit expired, what happened was that we saw poverty skyrocket almost overnight. Uh, and that's just unacceptable. Um, I mean, we just we do not need to live that way. Uh, and it, it doesn't need to necessarily go that route. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I think, the closest we've come to a national experiment with unconditional cash. We certainly have had short term infusions of cash. When we look at the CARES Act, for instance, I think one of the things we haven't mentioned this morning that's really crucial to note is that the idea of unconditional cash has support from both the right and the left, um, which is really unusual. So you, we think about right now in U.S. history, on the one hand, it seems really politically divisive, right? Like we're you know sort of at odds and there's you know gridlock in D.C. But by the same token, both Trump and Biden supported forms of unconditional cash going to the American people. And I think that that bodes well at thinking about how we could potentially move forward into having a true national experiment with unconditional cash. I know we've had two legislators that have proposed things of this nature, um, Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman in New Jersey, and then um, actually Senator Mitt Romney has also proposed um, the, I think, believe it was called the Family Security Act, which would also be a child tax credit. So, I mean, there, we haven't gotten there yet, but when we use the child tax credit as a comparison point, it's pretty pretty telling as to what it can do. You know, Natalie, um, I, I hear that there's bipartisan support, but isn't the compromise that would need to be made different on the right versus the left? Don't a lot of people who support this stuff on the right support it precisely because they'd like to cut other services that are available to poor people? Well, there are those, yes, but there's also people on the right who want to see more babies born in America and want to see family rates go up and know that it's so hard and expensive to raise a child in the U.S. and want to invest in um, in children. So I think there are a number of reasons, and um, I look forward to getting into you know a moment where we can actually discuss what a compromise position might look like. Right now, we're still 
you know, people are still very entrenched um, uh, on their sides. And Republicans have unfortunately blocked a lot of these advances at the federal level. Um, the, the question I also thought was important was just how many studies there are out there. In addition to what Dr. Castro does, you know, there are a number of other studies. Columbia uh, looks at this. The Give Directly team has run a number of studies internationally looking at cash transfers. The NYU Cash Transfer Lab has looked at Alaska, where we have decades worth of data of Alaskans receiving the dividend payments mm -hmm. and what it means. Um, in Alaska. So there's study after study after study that shows people are better off with cash transfers. And um, uh, that that literature is out there. The question now is, do we can we translate that into the political will to get it done? A um, couple other uh, questions. Uh, Greg writes to say, where does the funding come from? Is it the taxpayers? While I agree with the guests, it's important to point out this is just a Band-Aid for the consequences of having an intrinsically unjust society. Um, Natalie, I'm going to stick with you on this one. Funding mechanisms, what, what all have you seen in the political realm of possibility here? There's a number of ways to fund the social Aside from sowing fossil fuels like in Alaska. <laughs> That's yeah. true, <laughs> which will eventually phase out, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, as we know, uh, there are a number of ways to um, raise the funds to do the work. You know, we actually have the most meager safety net anywhere in the developed world. So our money goes elsewhere. And if we are serious about this, we can find the money, just like we did during um, the pandemic crisis and and the child tax credit. It was paid. It was paid for through you know debt financing and. Um, it lifted families out of poverty to the lowest rates of poverty in American history. So, um, you know, we know we can do it. We could put a tax on um, high, you know, high frequency um, trades, uh, a financial transaction tax. There's a, there's a number of progressive taxation um, schemes out there. Um, some questions, Julia, uh, bring you back in here. Um, how have you, a couple listeners are, are interested in about the interaction between a guaranteed income and other uh, public benefits that people receive. So one listener writes, how can a family receive guaranteed income where it won't impact their income level and thus reduce their public benefits? Yeah. So um, one of the things that our pilot project and all other pilot projects have been um, really looking into and trying to work around is um, making sure that this doesn't affect people's benefits, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I think generally the way that GI is set up is that it's supposed to support these benefits. It's not supposed to, at least as it exists right now, is not supposed to um, completely replace that mm -hmm. safety social net. So for us, um, luckily here in California, we have some standardized um, policy about waivers for um, mm -hmm. CalFresh, Medi-Cal, um, CalWorks, uh, where you know your our county applied and was able to get those waivers for us, so our participants will not be losing those benefits. And everything else is generally working with your local authority, like local mm -hmm. housing, local WIC. Um, but we do know that something like SSI or WIC are generally harder to cover mm -hmm. through these waivers. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of our um, like Momentum, who is kind of our thought partner in a lot of this, they've been able to retroactively pay their participants and, and really work with the local authorities to make sure that participants mm -hmm. aren't kind of breaking that ceiling. Yeah. Uh, Amy, I remember in, say, in the Stockton example, this was one of kind of one of the key early sticking points, right? 
Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> I I would not want to relive those months of my life. Uh yeah, you know, we you know when Stockton kicked off. I mean, you know, now I should say there there's over 140 pilots like this across the United States right now. If anybody wants to see a current list, I'd point them to our data visualization partners at Stanford Basic Income Lab. And it's funny to think back to 2018 when we were designing Stockton, we were one of just four programs like this across the country and we were the only program that was attached to public government. Uh, and so it was a really open question of, you know, what happens if we give somebody $500 a month and then they have a, you know, potentially lose health insurance, let's say, and have a catastrophic heart attack. Is that ethical? Is it legal? Right. <laughs> what do you even do? You know, so, you know, when it came to Stockton, we were really lucky to have really um, phenomenal local partners and then also some national partners, you know, with Natalie's team at Economic Security Project that helped us work through those things with our universities and also in community. Um, you know, it turned out that the people who helped us best in figuring out how to navigate those complexities were Stocktonians who, you know, really understood the way the benefit system worked. And had we as scientists stayed distant, right, and just, you know, apart from community and not had those conversations, we would not have found the path forward that we did that's now being replicated across the country. And so just want to sort of put that out there that we have kind of these systems now in place of benefits counseling and waivers and, you know, letting people choose for themselves who's receiving the cash, things, things of that nature. But those design decisions came because these policies and programs were designed in communication and in partnership with community. And if they had been done, you know, by a distant bureaucrat or by a distant researcher, uh, we we never would have made it off the ground, to be totally honest with you. Good, good points. Um, let's take a call. Let's go to uh, Jane in Mountain View. Welcome. Yes. Hi. Great topic. I applaud your work. Um, I was calling in regards to, you know, um, I noticed most of the help that um, I'm hearing about is mostly like towards families and that. Mm -hmm. And I was just calling like somebody like me that's single, you know, doesn't have a dual income, lives in the Bay Area, very expensive area. You know, most of my money goes towards rent. I don't make a lot of money. I make like $20 an hour, you know, after taxes and everything. And, you know, uh, I don't have any children, so a tax child credit doesn't help me out. So I was just wondering if something, you yeah. know, are there any anything out there, you know, um, you know, what's your guess, you know, any suggestions or any programs like $500 a month would help me considerably, yeah. you know, if they had some kind of program like that. Thank you so I much. your time. Thank you so yeah. much. Hey, Jane, thanks for taking the time to call. Really appreciate that. I'm going to uh, add one other listener comment, too, which is, are there guaranteed income programs in Oakland and more particularly for seniors living only on Social Security? And maybe, uh, Amy, let's uh, send this one to you since you're familiar with a lot of the, the different pilots across the country. Um, are there pilots that have looked at different, you know, exploring different kinds of, of folks, including, you know, not just pregnant women or not just families, but, um, you know, maybe seniors living on their own or people just uh, working? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, just thank you to the person who called in. Uh, not everybody shares that. And I think bringing out that level of vulnerability is important to talk about. Um, how many people are in need in the United States? You know, there it depend, really depends on the site. So with Stockton, we had a random sample. So we had people at all different levels of the socioeconomic strata who were involved in that particular program. And it really is up to each place as to how they set their targeted or what we would say in research terms, recruitment criteria. We do have one experiment in West Hollywood that's um, explicitly focused on older adults. You know, there's a lot of myths around um, poverty and the struggle to make ends meet when it comes to older adults. 
And we're super excited about that experiment in particular. Um, we can't speak too much to the data yet because it hasn't been released. But one thing that we have seen is that the questions and concerns that, that older adults have when it comes to trying to make ends meet are really similar to those about, you know, those of people who are, you know, earlier in the lifespan. The second thing I'll say to that is that one of the things that has really come out in the research is, you know, it's really key to focus on something called the sandwich generation. So we're talking about people who are still raising kids or, or trying to launch, you know, young adults who can't quite make it financially, but also at the same time caring for their aging kin or medically fragile family members, that particular group of people is often missed in these conversations. And it's it's a group that we see present really across the entire United States when we're looking at GI programs, um, particularly the ones that are kind of open enrollment where people, anyone can apply beneath a particular income threshold. Hmm. Um, let's bring in, thank you for that. Let's bring in Hart from Santa Rosa. Welcome. Hi, how's it going? Hey, good. Thanks for calling. Yeah, so um, my comment is that uh, just like the extractive um, uh, industry in Alaska pays dividends to um, residents of Alaska, we do have a lot of extractive industry on public land in the United States, and uh, this land is owned by the, the mm -hmm. public. Why is it that we can't generate a similar sort of dividend from those extractive industries as they do in Alaska? Yeah, that's a great question, Hart. Um, have you seen anything like that, Natalie? Or people kicking yeah. that idea around? Yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. How can we, you know, generate new forms of revenue from, um, you know, from, in this case, oil uh, mm -hmm. drilling like they did in Alaska? Um, Peter Barnes wrote a great book called With Liberty and Dividends for All. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's lots of ideas about how to do this out there. It's just a matter of what can move politically. And I think that's what's exciting about the child tax credit is that it it moved and it passed. Mm -hmm. And to the earlier caller, I believe, Jane, I think that is just the beginning, not the end, right? Mm -hmm. That is a stepping stone toward a guaranteed income that would go to every individual in the country, um, not just parents. So I really appreciated that comment. Yeah. You know, Hart, there was also an idea that floated around, you know, as far back as a, the aughts, that was going to be a climate tax and dividend, you know, sort of like carbon tax, and then that would go you know, to a dividend that would just be redistributed to to everyone. Um, you know, for some reason that never really took off, Yulia, but it was there. Um, Amy, uh, or, or Amy writes, um, the income requirements to qualify for CalWORKs in the state of California are pretty low. How do the participants in Concord uh, compare to the CalWORKs participants as far as their current income levels or where they are in that range of poverty? Can they receive CalWORKs and be in the study? I think we've answered that last one, but how, do, how like, what's the demographics of the of the pool? Um, so our pool on average is making around 21000 a year, um, which is really low, um, especially living in Concord um, in the Bay Area um, and in having child like children, right? Um, so our participants, um, most of them have anywhere from two um, to um, I have one mom who has eight kids. So, you know, it's it's they're 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 living on just like what. Um, on just one job or multiple jobs. Um, most of our participants are um, Latino. Um, again, we serve a large number of immigrants and refugees, um, and most of them are on public benefits in one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, but most of them have um, CalFresh or Medi-Cal specifically. Yeah. 
Um, Jessica, I just wanted to ask you about, uh, Mike writes in to say, can you address availability versus access? I imagine many services are available, but many folks are unaware or face barriers to access them. Uh, that's wonderful. And you're specifically talking about guaranteed income or are you talking about our social safety net? I think guaranteed income, uh, specifically, but you know, as part of the broader set of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, just like with most of our social safety net or things that folks are like um, qualify for, there's, you know, the availability of funding, you know, is limited like at this time. And I think that that's one of the reasons why really thinking towards a sustainable guaranteed income that could be facilitated by the government and some of our larger infrastructures to really support folks Um is, is needed um, because right now demonstrations are happening through mighty wonderful organizations that have specific, you know, funding, again, a multitude of funding, public, private, um, and that are focused on specific populations. So they're adding value to work that's already being done. We certainly um, would love to see like they've done in Chicago, you know, a massive larger scale of guaranteed income. Um, and I think that's what we're all kind of advocating for in our own work. Um, and, and definitely the aim is that we would, you know, that this would reach more people. Um, but sim- simply doing 150 participants, you know, that that that's a that's a big lift, right? And so we're really proud of our of our folks in Concord. We're really proud here in Richmond. We're really, really, you know, Stockton led the way here in California. And we yeah. um, we know that these demonstrations are not meeting the need, but again, that's why many of us are working together regionally and on the state, yeah. excuse me, and on the national level. And they're so meeting we, some people's needs. So there's that. They're meeting, yeah. meeting some yeah. people's yeah. needs and they're raising the conversation so that we can really change our economic policies and our moral kind of code of how we are uh, taking care of folks in the, in this in this country. And I think that these demonstrations altogether are going to make a big difference. Yeah. Um, I would love to serve every single person. And and I know certainly here at Richmond Rapid Response Fund, um, if I had the money to serve everyone in, you know, every single human being in Richmond, um, it, that would be amazing. You would, and yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I absolutely would. And I also think that like city governments and county governments actually don't have all the money they need to meet the needs of mm-hmm. folks. And part of that is because of the way that they invest their money. I say put your money in the cash or in the hands of people. When I've seen money in the hands of people over the last three years in a way that I haven't in the last 15 of serving my community, I just see it's a much better investment. It really goes a long way, especially especially in communities that have been divested in. Yeah. Uh, Last comment from a listener, uh, Catherine writes, as Matthew Desmond argues in his book on American poverty, we could easily fund programs like these just by collecting what is owed by tax dodging corporations and the wealthy. Poverty is indeed a policy choice. You can listen to him talk about that book on this very show, or you can read Evicted, which was his previous book. And that is a book that changes people's minds. We have been talking about guaranteed income programs, including new one launched in Concord and ones in Richmond. We've been joined by Julia Quintero, who's Elevate Concord project manager with Monumental Impact. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Also been joined by Jessica Trevina, director of the Richmond Rapid Response Fund. Thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. Thank you so much. Been joined by the University of Pennsylvania's Amy Castro. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And the Economic Security Project's Natalie Foster. Thanks so much, Natalie. Such a pleasure, Alexis. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Form Ahead with Nina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.